This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Coming up this hour, infectious disease expert Dr. Mia Taramina shares the latest on COVID variants and school unmasking. Plus, Chicago poet Harold Green talks to us about his new book, Black Roses, which comes out tomorrow. But first, an update on the war in Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to deliver a virtual joint address to Congress on Wednesday as Russia intensifies its assault. Nearly 600 civilians have been killed in the last three weeks, including a U.S. journalist. Experts say the real death toll is likely much higher. And more than 2.6 million Ukrainians have fled the country, with many seeking refuge in neighboring Poland and Hungary. Yulian Haida is a third-generation Ukrainian-American, freelance journalist and a former producer here at WBEZ. He's reporting on the ground right now in Lviv, and he joins us. Hi, Julian. Hi, how's it going? Going well. What have you heard about the attacks uh, happening in Ukraine over the weekend? Well, it's become kind of a staple to wake up in the morning and try to see what happened while uh, our team here in Lviv uh, spent the last several nights in bomb shelters. Um, yesterday morning was perhaps the most uh, shocking news in, in at least uh, a week, at least in this part of the country in western Ukraine, when, um, whereas the first few days of the all-out invasion in late February, um, this part of the country wasn't really being attacked. Um, and, of course, I think many people have now heard about uh, the the international training mission that was attacked about eight miles from um, the Polish-Ukrainian border, mm-hmm. which is um, not that far from where I am uh, right now, if I weren't in the bomb shelter, as some people I know in this city weren't, because it's become a staple, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just easier to sleep in your own bed. Uh, they heard the explosions and in the sky, and that again, has been something that people in the rest of Ukraine have been hearing, but to hear it so far west is a little new. And so that is a bit of a change. But fortunately, last night was a bit more quiet in these parts of Ukraine. Well, Yulian, we are so glad you're safe. And uh, and thank you for for taking the time to to report back with us here uh, on Reset. Uh, What else can you tell us about that attack near the Polish border? What else do you Sure. Well, yeah, the location that was uh, hit was um, part of uh, an international training center that Ukraine has had set up for a long time and kind of reconfigured after uh, Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Um, there had been uh, foreign troops uh, from the U.S., Canada, other NATO allies who had been training Ukraine, the Ukrainian military, especially after the Ukrainian military was really, uh, for lack of a better word, decimated after the presidency of of President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014 after he fled the country. Mm -hmm. And so when Ukraine started uh, defending itself and fighting this war in the Far East and and kind of looking towards Crimea, what to do, the military kind of started from scratch. And so they got a lot of of assistance that was – uh, delivered at that base, and and so there had been many uh, foreign soldiers there. Now they left mostly in in January, and there aren't any foreign troops there. 
Um, but 35 people died yesterday morning on that base, 134 wounded, according to the last tally. Mm -hmm. And I heard just a couple hours ago at a press conference with the local military administration, the 10 are still in critical condition. A lot of people have donated blood. A lot of people are trying to figure out how to get involved. But the base, which was met by, uh, visited by some of my colleagues, is, is totally locked down. Um, they talked to some of the villagers who saw the rockets in the sky. Uh, there were 30 rockets, uh, according to the Ukrainian government, that were headed towards the base. Mm -hmm. About 22 were intercepted. So that means that eight ended up actually hitting that base, which is very large, wow. but uh, it did quite a bit of damage. Uh, although there are no reports of any um, foreigners who were killed in the attack. And the reason that's relevant is that after... Um, at the end of February, Ukraine's president invited foreigners to come to Ukraine to fight as volunteers, not with any any military. But they they set up this called it's called a foreign legion. There's twenty thousand people, according to the Ukrainian government, who have joined, and they're there on that base. Mm -hmm. But none none of the foreign citizens who are volunteering in, in Ukraine's defense uh, were killed in that attack yesterday. Uh, Poland's part of the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization military alliance. How have NATO leaders reacted? Not very much. Um, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that even though this is pretty close to NATO territory, um, it's not a, a strictly relevant to NATO. Uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Um, this is a common um, point of concern that uh, people on both the American side and the Russian side, you know, Russia has been justifying a lot of these actions by invoking NATO. If you listen to uh, Russian media or people who are perhaps less than entirely informed, uh, you, you would think that Ukraine is part of NATO or that Ukraine is somehow synonymous with NATO or that Ukraine is a, a kind of a, a, a client state of NATO. But none of those things are, are, are really true. And therefore, these attacks, even though close to the border, um, are, are you know something that NATO is paying attention to. It's not exactly relevant to NATO. So they haven't said much apart from condemning the attacks, uh, and they've been doing so for the last last couple of weeks. But mm -hmm. it's it's almost, um, yeah, not really something that they're paying attention to, unless, of course, the fighting does spill over into NATO territory. Say a rocket that gets shot, on the, shot out of the sky, uh, eight miles isn't that far, ends up falling on Polish territory. Um, there's plenty of possible accidents that I think people are more worried about. Then again, people in Ukraine are trying to protect themselves without any of those privileges. So yeah. that's uh, almost uh, a source of frustration here on the ground, according to some of the people that I've talked to, that, um, you know, why does it matter that um, there's a potential for conflict with NATO if there's an actual conflict right now in Ukraine? And you, yourself, you were planning to move to Ukraine to study in a monastery before this conflict began. And when we last talked to you on the program, you were joining your classes online. So what have you been hearing from your classmates about what's going on in Ukraine? Sure. Well, my seminary has been um, functioning in a kind of suspended format the last two weeks. There have been... Um, informal lectures, mostly on things like self-care and mental health and 
history in the time of war, because this is a part of the world that has experienced a great deal of war. And so people have been logging on to those lessons every morning at 10 o'clock. Um, as of today, there's a few lessons coming back to normal, but considering that many of my classmates are still at risk of being drafted or conscripted. It's, it's unlikely at this point. And considering how many of them are involved in some sort of volunteer activity, whether that's you know medical volunteering, driving refugees to the border, feeding people, digging bomb shelters, I mean, you name it, they're mm -hmm. doing it. Um, they uh, are, are trying to balance their education with their spiritual responsibilities, so um, their their reading, their prayer life, um, with um, with with their education. So it's you know it's a struggle to have to balance all of that, but it's a struggle that I think most of the country is is having to do in their own lives as well. I visited a shopping mall yesterday, and um, people are still going to work. Um, some people don't go to work. And so people are trying to either protect themselves or find a sense of normalcy wherever they can find it. Yeah, sounds like it. You also, um, you reported on a story that some of Ukraine's Orthodox churches want to split from their Russian patriarch. What's happening there? <laughs> this is a really, really long story. But the the, the gist of it is that um, Ukraine, again, having experienced a great deal of of war and, and suffering over the last several hundred years was also um, the, the um, almost kind of collateral uh, damage to that was the unity of, of Ukraine's Christians. And so what you had is, is effectively um, three years ago, four separate churches claiming to be the legitimate national church of Ukraine. In 2018, some of the churches that were um, unrecognized by other churches around the world work with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch in, from Istanbul or Constantinople, to use the old name, to unite. Mm -hmm. And that created a bit of a rift between the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. And there were a number of holdouts in Ukraine who still believe that the Russian Orthodox Church is the only legitimate church in Ukraine. But now that the Russian Orthodox Patriarch in Moscow has justified Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has doubled down on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and even blamed uh, Ukraine for inviting the attacks because Ukraine has gay pride parades, uh, and therefore Russia had to liberate Ukraine from a Western gay liberal agenda, and this is in the words of the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, many Russian Orthodox in Ukraine feel that the Russian attack is undefensible. And so it's created a rift in the remaining Russian Orthodox, which are, you know, depending on who you ask, anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of the populations, which is much fewer than they had been even, even three years ago. Yeah. But they are um, trying to figure out how to perhaps um, have their cake and eat it too, in a way, if they want to split from the people who are justifying rockets falling on their, on mm -hmm. their churches and on their, on their towns. But also they don't want to necessarily get involved in some of what they perceive to be the politics of three years ago with the Greek Orthodox. And so, you know, time will tell. I, I hate to say that, but time will tell how they will uh, justify those positions um, with 
you know, with regards to their, their local ability to serve people and also the international implications, which stretch to places like Africa, which now have a Greek-Russian Orthodox split, which spread to Amsterdam, which, where churches are leaving and, and finding new, um, new, new jurisdictions sign up to. So it's it's really something that, that's worth looking out to and even locally um, in the Chicago area, which churches pledge allegiance to which other churches. Right. And um, that's just how these churches. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And we are talking about the latest in the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're talking with Yulian Haida, who's a third generation Ukrainian American and a former producer here at WBEZ. He's now doing some freelance work for NPR. And coming up on the program, we will check in with infectious disease specialist Dr. Taramina for the latest on COVID in our area. So stay tuned for that. Yulian, Russia's connection with the rest of the world, it's getting smaller now, especially since Instagram pulled out of the country. What are you hearing about how communication is is like, you know, getting in and out of there? Well, I think communication is still more or less... Um, where you know where where it was before, people are still able to send emails. People are still able to call. But I think what you what you point to with Instagram is is reliance on on social media and certain platforms to communicate. Uh, Russia has a great number of influencers on Instagram. It is a very popular platform in Russia and. The fact that that's getting cut off has created uh, a lot of of of, of people's livelihoods um, on 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 hold. Um, that's not only with, with communication and with social media. That that's along with uh, a lot of um, American and Western businesses that have had to pull out or suspend their operations. Of course, there's many who still have their operations in Russia. Uh, at the same time, Russia has criminalized anything that they perceive to be uh, anti-Russian propaganda. And so even uh, American reporters in Russia are having a very difficult time reporting on mass protests or the war in Ukraine from the Russian side. And of course, I think everybody uh, can see what kind of problem that is because before this, um, every uh, you know major radio network, every major newspaper had a Moscow correspondent uh, that would cover Ukraine as mm-hmm. kind of part of their territory. And now all the Moscow correspondents have been forced to leave and have been forced to, you know, kind of ditch their work, which is a very difficult position to be in if, if, if you're a journalist to not be able to do your work freely. So, you know, it, it it's kind of affecting communication, but um, we'll kind of see what direction that's heading in, whether Russia will cut off from the rest of the world, which is, I don't think, something that the Russian leadership wants. And yet they are um, policing language and policing um, people's ability to use social media and traditional media in a way that is um, trying to, to provide cover domestically for the, the actions that the Russian military has, has conducted in Ukraine. Yeah. Something else I, I want us to acknowledge, Yulian, is uh, that U.S. video journalist Brett Renault was killed yesterday uh, when reporting on uh, a Kiev suburb. So, you know, just in light of your own personal decision to leave the safety of reporting from London, right, to heading to report from a war zone, what's going through your mind? 
that is something that I have to um, consider um, all day, every day. It is not fun to be woken up in the middle of the night, anywhere from 2.30 to 4.30 in the morning by um, first my um, my iPhone uh, emergency alert going off and then a siren outside and then my the building that I'm in, the, the public announcement system saying, alert, alert, time to go to the bomb shelter. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's something that goes through my mind as I'm drifting off to sleep in the bomb shelter for uh, another night in a row. Mm. But it's worth remembering that this is a very, very large country. Uh, this country is the size of Texas. It's the biggest country in Europe. Um, the conflict that, unfortunately, Brent Renault was was caught up in is is 400 miles away from from where I am right now. And as much as I would love to be there and be with people. Um, Every journalist has their role where they're best situated to do their work. And, and at the moment, it's for me uh, here in Lviv where I'm nonetheless able to be with the 200,000 plus internally displaced people who have made this their temporary home. Um, there is a press center here in Lviv. Uh, I am in the country and able to travel around the country mm -hmm. uh, with an arm's length from where the tanks and the snipers and the landmines are. So um, we, are, we are looking at this very closely. NPR has a fantastic team that looks out for journalist safety, but um, it would be wrong to say that there aren't any risks at all. Uh, problem is, and, and uh, this is part of what, what journalism is. Journalism is about being with people. Journalism is about finding out what's happening firsthand. And it's impossible to do that from abroad. It's impossible to do that from even on the other side of the border in yeah. Poland. It's, I mean, you can get closer, but it's it's what I think every journalist is called to do in the moment that um, that that presents itself to be done. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're making that clear, Julian, because I I have to admit, as a journalist myself, I got a lot of questions from from family and from friends yesterday. You know, why are your colleagues going out there? Why would they do this? You know, it's... You said it's a calling. It's not for everybody. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you asked me this question. Um, but what I think has been made abundantly clear. And I think if you, if you listen to what Ukrainian people are saying is that this can happen anywhere. Conflict can happen anywhere. And while war is never something that except for maybe a few people in the military, um, ever sign up for, um, it's something that affects people and it, first affects the most marginalized. And as journalists who live by the mantra of speaking truth to power, and, and when that power is violent, and when that power is dangerous, we can't suspend our commitment to the truth because the power became too powerful. Um, and so Ukraine is a place where I'm 
uniquely skilled and able to do that as someone who's a Ukrainian speaker, mm -hmm. as someone who's worked in public radio. But I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, this war has brought a lot of attention because this is a country that is so plugged into the rest of the world. It has such a big diaspora in a place like Chicago. But, and we've talked about this before uh, on Reset, uh, Chicago has a huge Ethiopian community and there's a war in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Chicago has a huge Yemeni community and there's a community in Yemen. So it's worth understanding what people live through and that's what journalists are supposed to do and journalists aren't always able to do that. And I'm very glad that the journalists have committed their resources and their time and their attention to Ukraine. But I wish more people, the consumers of media, you know, through through their media consumption habits, mm -hmm. um, also took a little bit of um, time and attention to the people and the conflicts from from other parts of the world. Ukraine is very privileged in this moment. Ukraine needs a lot of uh, attention, um, but. The fact that this can happen anywhere and to anybody and even people who live next door to you in Chicago, um, it's, it's, it's something that can't be ignored because yeah. even, even selfishly, you have to know uh, what to do in that kind of situation or how to prepare for that kind of situation. And um, truth is the only way to, to, to get to that. Yeah. Yulian Haida is a third-generation Ukrainian-American freelance journalist and a former producer here at WBEZ. Yulian, thank you for joining us, and take good care. Thank you very much. Glad to talk to you and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.